The previous chapter we read a few weeks ago was uh, the culmination, really, of Abraham's life in a lot of ways. It was kind of the peak episode of his life, expressing the fullness of his faith. Um, sometimes it's called the Akedah. Do you, uh, does anybody remember what the Akedah means? Or uh, what it, what it, uh, it's a Hebrew phrase? Do we remember what was in the last chapter? <laughs> what's the what's the defining moment of Abraham's life? The lamb, the the it was the lamb God provided the right the sacrifice. Right. The lamb. The, the binding lamb. of Isaac. The, the ram. The binding, yeah. The, the binding the sacrificing of Isaac, right? Yes. Yes, yes. You there's it's so rich in typological anticipation of God providing a lamb, right? Uh, all pointing to Christ, who is the seed of Abraham. Abraham sacrificing Isaac uh, in this figurative sense. And Paul in Hebrew saying he received him back from the dead, right? And, and, and Abraham acting as the ultimate systematic theologian and saying, okay, God promises that my seed is going to rule the earth and I'm going to be a blessing. And it's going to come from Isaac. And then God says, sacrifice Isaac. And as 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 a, a faithful Christian, he affirms both. And, and what does Paul say in Hebrews? He concluded that God would bring him back from the dead. And, and, and Paul says he did receive him back from the dead. And Isaac, Isaac being this kind of Christ, Isaac having almost a passion, you could call it a passion of Isaac, where he, representing Christ, bringing the wood on himself willingly. Remember, we talked about him being old enough to resist his father's will, but he went willingly. He submitted to the father's will will um, and and put himself um, on the altar but God didn't have him go through with it the angel of the Lord who is Jesus a a Christophany stops him and uh, he provides um, these type and shadows uh, a sacrifice uh, of a a ram um, and and the sacrifice of the son is reserved for God the father who who sacrifices his son Jesus uh, for for the world and to create a whole uh, the fullness of the sons of Abraham in the church. We also see, so we have the faith of Abraham coming to fruition there. We have the faith of Isaac coming to fruition, or, or maybe not fruition, but we see it there even as a young man. And then we also see the faith of Sarah. We're, we're told that uh, this was previous, but Sarah, we are told in the New Testament, by faith, she conceived Isaac. So we're seeing that after the whole rough and tumble of so much of their life, that faith is actually bearing fruit. There's things coming uh, from that. This week, as much as it kind of, it's obscure, and I'm still working through all the meanings of it, Abraham is exercising, another, it's another statement of his faith with his committing of Sarah to the ground in Canaan. And so we're going to get into uh, some of that now. Okay, so one of the things that Moses goes out of his way to tell us is that Sarah lived 127 years. Mm. Now, that could just be something he's telling us. I mean, that, that is something that's recorded of everybody that dies. It could mean nothing more than she lived 127 years. Um, but there's two things that are going on. One, um, for me, uh, it reminds me of this kind of weird... Um, it's kind of this halfway point, not really a halfway point. It's this ambiguity of 
what we saw with the antediluvian world and then the world that we know now. Mm -hmm. So the antediluvian world, you have Adam living 900 some years old and then it slowly gets less and less. So you have men living hundreds and hundreds of years. And if we correspond that to the Sarah, that would be Eve who likely lived 900 or so years. And, and so we see a significant diminishment of the lifespan uh, with the patriarchs after uh, the flood and after ba Babel uh, especially. Um, and Sarah's death at 127 reminds us of this uh, diminishment. However, 127 years old is pretty old for us in, a, in an average lifespan now. So it also kind of, it's reaching back into that antediluvian world. And I would also argue if we connect it to the sons of Abraham, there might, it reminds me, I'm not saying the text is giving us this, but it reminds me of what might possibly be in our future at some point, and that is extended lifespans through the blessings of the covenant um, prior to Christ's return. And the reason why I say that is because in Isaiah, we read this. In Isaiah 65, he's talking about the new heavens and the new earth, which it's in terms that are abundantly blessed, but there's also people still dying. So it can't be in the eternal state. And he says this, never again will there be in it, the new heavens and the new earth, an infant who lives but a few days, infant mortality is gone. Or an old man who does not live out his years. Old men are gonna live full lives. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child. The one who lives to a hundred, and then he goes on, the one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. Can you imagine living in a world where you think, wow, he died, he died at 98, he was taken too soon. Can you imagine that? This is what Isaiah is suggesting, and to me, this seems to indicate if we are on the trajectory to this kind of paradise, New Jerusalem garden, if we, if we look at it as far as like the trajectory, we have lifespans at the garden and then we have most of human history, it seems like we're gonna start seeing this uptick again. Now we don't see this attested to a lot in scripture, but it is there in Isaiah. I've, I don't know what else it would mean, <laughs> except that this is gonna happen at some point. Sarah's death at 127 is it's, it's reaching into both worlds, and that's what it uh, reminds me of. It gives me hope. I think it'll be, I think, uh, and it could come about through the church starts repenting and actually living faithfully, and then we see it manifest through some kind of blessing of medical technology, you know, where we're able to significantly slow down the, the breakdown of DNA or cellular breakdown. There, there's so many, who would have thought somebody living in the, in the 1900s, uh, you know, who was driving a, a horse or riding a horse around, if they came now, I mean, it's only been a hundred years, how significantly advanced we are. We have little computers in our pockets and we can fly. We, there's flying buses that can take us from each coast in a few hours. I mean, this is, this is wild. So I think that this is, this is something that comes to mind um, when I when I see this and it uh, it fills me with awe with God's mystery and wonder in the world and his and his redemption of the world and bringing us back into the garden. The other thing that it uh, indicates this could be nothing, <laughs> but I think there might be something to it 
is I think there's actually a call back to this in the story of Esther. In Esther, we have, uh, we have the, the author telling us the, the, the number of provinces in uh, Ahasuerus's kingdom are 127. It's mentioned three times in the story. I th it's mentioned at the very beginning of chapter one, and then I think it's mentioned twice in chapter nine. And if we think about that, I'll, I'll read chapter one. Uh, King uh, Ahasuerus reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. Um, and then this is meant this 127 provinces is mentioned again. This could mean nothing. And we don't want to kind of uh, have, uh, you know, unwarranted, fruitful imaginations where we're overly fascinated with numbers and connections and stuff. But I do think. If you examine the story of Sarah and you examine the story of Esther, there's, there's remarkable similarity. Sarah is taken by a king to be part of his harem twice. Uh, Sarah is taken by Abimelech. Sarah is taken by Pharaoh. Esther is taken by the king to be part of his harem, to be the queen. Um, we see that uh, Sarah hides her identity from the kings. What, what if she obeys Abraham? Tell him you're my sister. She does that. Esther re doesn't reveal her identity to the king because she listens to her uncle Mordecai. I think he's his uncle, her, her uncle. She listens to Mordecai. Mordecai says, don't tell him you're a Jew. <laughs> and she does it. She withholds it for a while. So she, she's, she's, she's having, there's this kind of deception from the woman, um, which also we've talked about before. Um, this deception of the woman, the woman deceiving the serpent instead of the serpent deceiving the woman. We see that, we see that at play. Um, we see uh, when Pharaoh and Abimelech take Sarah, this happens, this, the, the, seed of Isaac, the seed of Isaac is threatened. If another man is going to be with Sarah, well, the seed that's supposed to come from Abraham's body, which, what, what, what does the Bible teach us about Abraham's body? Is it just Abraham as a single individual? No, what does the Bible say? When the husband and wife are joined together, they are one body. They are one flesh. Well, the seed was going to come from Abraham's body, who was Abraham and Sarah, united. Um, and so when Sarah is taken, the seed is threatened. Isaac was threatened. When Esther is taken, we have Haman threatening the seed. But this is a different kind of seed. It's not in the person of Isaac anymore. It's in the Jewish people who are the physical descendants, the seeds of Abraham. They are threatened. Haman wants to destroy them. And so we have Abimelech, Pharaoh, acting as the serpent, threatening the seed of the woman. And then Haman is the serpent of that story, threatening the seed of the woman. We have this, this culminates in Jesus. And G, the seed of the woman is threatened by Herod, who is a new kind of serpent who massacres all of the children in Bethlehem and is trying to destroy the seed. We see it in Revelation when the woman of Revelation 12 is giving birth. We see that there's a serpent there trying to destroy the child. And, and then once the church is, is born and the, the children of the seed Christians are born, what happens? They immediately are persecuted by 
the governing authorities, who in that instance are the serpent threatening the seed. So we see uh, something here with, uh, I think, this uh, Esther-Sarah uh, comparison. Also in Esther, um, what's, what's the, what was the, throughout Abraham's life, God is promising him, uh, he's promising him that his, his seed will be made great. He's promising him the land. But in the Isaac episode, does anybody remember, there was one additional promise that we spent a whole sermon talking on. It was one sentence. What was that, what was that additional promise that God gave to Abraham after uh, sacrificing Isaac. God reaffirms his covenant with, with Abraham after he says, now I know that you yeah. fear me. Yeah. And, he's, and then he reaffirms the covenant, but he adds something which um, uh, Rebecca's family, Rebecca's family, um, uh, she, they say the same thing. They know what the promise is. And they say it to Rebecca as she's going to marry Isaac, as she's being sent off to marry Isaac. It's a benediction they give her. They say, may your children possess the gates of your enemy. Oh, yeah, that's right. And this is, this is the additional promise that God gives to Abraham. You will possess the gates of your enemy. If we look at Esther's story, the end of it, the Jews possess the gates of their enemies. They, there's a slaughter of all the people who wanted to kill them. They kill all of them. So the promises of Abraham are being applied to his seed in the story of Esther, which then culminates in the Jewish feast of Purim. And uh, so... Uh, I think that uh, I, there, there's a lot more that we could talk about there, but I think that uh, particularly that possessing the gates of your enemies is, I think, I think very significant. Um, we see that, he, here's another kind of speculation, but uh, Sarah dies in Kiriath Arba, so she dies in Hebron. If we look through the story, um, it, verse 2, it says, Abraham comes to mourn for her. But the, the last place that we see Abraham and Sarah together is not in Hebron. It's in Gerar. It's amongst the Philistines. And then they could possibly be together in Beersheba, um, but we're not explicitly told that. We see that Abraham is in Beersheba, um, it, that Abraham returns to dwell in Beersheba after sacrificing Isaac. But Hebron is north, northeast of all of these places, about 40 miles. And so it's a, a significant ways away from where we've seen them previously. And it could just simply be that Moses didn't tell us that they moved there. It could be that maybe Sarah was visiting a friend and she happened to die there. And so Abraham had to go. But I, but what we're told is Abraham has to go to her. Maybe it could be, maybe he was out in the field shepherding the sheep, overseeing other shepherds. Maybe he was trading furs or something. We don't know. There's a million different things. However, however, there could be, it could be that Sarah left Abraham. <laughs> And I'm not the only one to suggest this. There have been others who have suggested that Sarah leaves Abraham. And it could be that this was another thing that Abraham had to sacrifice and give up. If you think about it, you think about, the, and anyone who's walked the walk of Abraham knows 
that once you start doing the things of Abraham, <laughs> the things that God calls you to, uh, sometimes people think it's horrific and they are not going to stay with you. And with think about how significant this would have been with Sarah. Sarah, barren, 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 all of this turmoil with Hagar and God's promise of this child and all these blessings. And then Abraham says, I have, I have to sacrifice my son. Obviously, we don't know if he told that to Sarah, but he says, I got to sacrifice my son. We can imagine Sarah saying, you are going against the word of God by doing this. You may think you've heard from God, but we know that God said, this is the promised son. You are rebelling against God because you've lost your mind and your, in your, the senility of your old age. You are raging against Christ's church. I've had people tell me this for doing things of the faith of Abraham. I have had women tell me, you are fighting against Christ's church. I don't think it's too much to think that Sarah may have said the same thing. And then that was just another sacrifice that Abraham had to give up. And then he went and he faithfully committed her to the ground in Hebron. Now, this is a speculation, but it is something uh, to consider. Okay. Now, the majority of this passage, we'll close with this. The majority of this passage is this back and forth between Abraham and one of the leaders of this area. And the, the leaders, the people are very insistent uh, that they exercise this kind of hospitality of please take this land, almost as if you're hosting a guest, almost as if the Hittites were, were, were wanting to be benevolent and kind to the guest in their land, to the guest in their home, saying, please take this land. And Abraham is insistent, no, I want to buy it. I want to pay for it. Why is he so insistent on this? You see a similar thing when he goes and he fights against the kings in, in the uh, uh, earlier passages uh, and, and the, the, uh, the kings of Sodom and all of that stuff. The, the, when he brings back the Sodomites in Lot, the king of Sodom wants to give him a bunch of, of the spoils, and Abraham refuses. He says, I don't want that. You can pay the men. I don't want it. What I think Abraham is doing here is he's wanting to be emphatic that the land is given to him by God and that he owns the land, that the land is his, that it is given by God. It is not given by men. It is not given by Caesar. They don't have even the ability to exercise this benevolent kind of, you may have this little plot of land. It's no, this is all God's and I am going to buy this and I'm going to commit my wife's body to it. And that also is a statement of Abraham's faith being, we are no longer pilgrims and sojourners. Although the the New Testament describes them this way, what is Abraham doing there? He is saying, this is now our home. This is now our land. It is a statement of faith saying, I believe what God has said. I believe that God says this land is mine because he could have taken Sarah's body back to Haran. He could have taken it back to Ur. He could have taken it back to their home, but he's no, I'm going to buy this land. 
not out of the goodwill, not out of charity, but because this is mine in the first place. And I'm going to, it's basically staking your claim. And he's been doing this. He's been building altars. He's been doing all of these things saying this is where we land. But I think uh, if we look at how significant, we don't think that bones and burials are very significant now, right? It's not a big deal. But the early church thought that they were a big deal. The early church would gather the bones of burnt martyrs and keep them because, I mean, if you read the New Testament, there's relics and shadows and cloaks and stuff that are healing people. And so not only was there this kind of uh, uh, exaltation of holy bodies and bones, but I think it was also a statement of the resurrection. We believe in the resurrection of the body. The pagans don't believe in that. We believe in that. That is a specifically Christian eschatology because the body is bad. It's, it's this terrible thing in pagan thought, but in the Christian thought, it's been redeemed. And so these bones mean something. You look at the history of the church. Where are cemeteries? Where are the bones of the saints laid? They're, they're laid behind the church. <laughs> because, and you're going to be resurrected with your family. It's a statement of the significance of that. And I think there may be a little bit of that. If we look to, in Genesis 25, Abraham is buried in the same spot. Isaac and Ishmael bury Abraham next to Sarah. Esau and Jacob bury Isaac in the same spot. Genesis 35. Jacob has Joseph make an oath uh, to him that his body would be buried in the same spot. He says in Genesis 47, please do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. You shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And then Jack, and then Jacob's last words before he died recounted this event. He says, then he charged them and said to them, I am go, I am to be gathered to my people. So there's this identification with your people. He does not want to be in Egypt. He wants to be with his people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron, the Hittite in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abram brought Abram bought with the field of Ephron and the Hittite as a possession, as a possession, right? For a burial place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is there were purchased from the sons of Heth. And when Jacob had finished commanding his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. These were literally his last words. Bring my bones to that place. We don't think that's important, right? Just throw my body in an incinerator and scatter them. You know, keep, keep me in an urn above a fireplace. I'm not saying those things are inherently bad or anything. I'm just saying there is something significant about the body and it being committed to the ground, particularly as Christians. These, these first Christians <laughs> knew that this land, this little sliver of land was theirs, and they wanted their bodies there as this kind of act of faith. We know that all of the land is ours. And so I think there is something significant act about actually burying your body into the ground. <clears throat> we see that Joseph does the same thing. Joseph makes the children of Israel swear to bring his bones out of Egypt after the Exodus. 
Joseph says this to his brothers. So he's dying. He says this, I am dying, but God will surely visit you. So he's prophesying and bring you out of this land to the land, which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. Then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old and they embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. That's how the book of Genesis ends. The book of Genesis ends with Joseph saying, take my bones back to the land, <laughs> to the place where Abraham was buried. And then, and then we read, we read in Exodus, I didn't put the reference, but Moses, we're, we're told Moses brings Joseph bones. Moses took the bones of Joseph with, Joseph with him, for he had placed the children of Israel under a solemn oath, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones uh, from here with you. Now, that's like 400 years later. <laughs> this is, why is this so important? <laughs> it is important. That land is theirs. The body is important. It belongs to them. Um, and then in Joshua 24, so that's just bringing it out of Egypt. We got a bunch of desert wandering to do, <laughs> carrying this coffin of this, <laughs> this Hebrew prince and his bones, this 400 year old bones. But Joshua 24, we finally get some rest. I think also the bones of Joseph, which the Israelites had brought up out of Egypt were buried at Shechem in the plot of land that Jacob had purchased from the sons of Hamor. Shechem's father for a hundred pieces of silver. So it became an inheritance for Joseph's descendants. Now I, that may not be, I don't think that's the same place. I didn't get to look into that too much, but I don't think that's the exact same place. It's not Hebron and it doesn't mention Ephron, um, but it is in Canaan. Um, but Paul mentions this very thing in Hebrews 11 by faith. This is saving faith, right? This is justifying faith. <clears throat> we, we have such a myopic view of what justifying faith is. We, we have no clue. We think justifying faith is like this. Justifying faith is like this. It's huge. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites and gave instructions about his bones. <laughs> what? Instructing about his bones was a justifying faith. And so I think Joseph is exercising the faith of Abraham. We see Abraham successfully passing on his faith to his children, all the way down to Joseph, all the way down to us, thinking that these things are important, thinking that the word of God is important, thinking about what God has promised to us is so important that you are willing to commit to where you are at. You are willing to commit to what God has said. God said to Abraham, this land is yours. Abraham says, okay, we're not going back to Ur. We're not going back to Haran. I want to buy a plot of land. This is where we're committing ourselves to. And he didn't see it, right? He didn't see the fullness of this. It took a very long time for Joseph's bones to come back from Egypt. It took a long time to conquer the land. In some ways, they didn't ever really fully conquer it. We are still in the midst of conquering uh, the land. All right, let's go ahead and uh, sing the Lord's Prayer. 
God promised the earth to the seed of Abraham. Jesus is the seed of Abraham. And in Christ, we are the seeds of Abraham. And so because Christ has promised this to us, we must believe it. We must commit ourselves to it in the same way Abraham committed his wife's body to that earth. We believe the words of God and we act accordingly. And we do these extraordinary commitments to the absurd, to the unreasonable. And by doing that, we are exercising justifying faith. We are exercising the faith of our father, Abraham. We are exercising a faith which manifests in the possessing of the gates of our enemies, like we see in the end of Esther, that we see promise to the sons of Sarah. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, and the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit to be among you and remain with you always. Amen. 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 Amen.